this podcast by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA. I'm Paola Buonadonna. NISA is 80 years old this year, so this November, our economic review is dedicated to our anniversary, with a look at the Institute's contributions to forecasting, as well as to the study of productivity measurement, globalization, and labor economics. I have with me today Professor Peter Dalton, NISA's research director, who has written an article reviewing the main trends in labor economics, particularly in the last 50 years or so. Peter, I think you've identified 10 or so trends in your review. Let's talk about at least some of those. Shall we start perhaps with unemployment? Okay, unemployment. Uh, historically, it's been very high. If you think about what it was, obviously, when NISA started in the 30s, it was very, very high. It was also high um, in in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. It was up to about 12 or 13%. Um, now, relatively speaking, we stand at around 4%. It's, it's, not, it's not so high. I'm not saying unemployment's not a problem. I'm just saying, relatively speaking, that's not our biggest problem in the British economy today. But the nature of work has changed completely, hasn't it? In the absolutely. Last 10 absolutely. years or so. If you think now that we, I mean, we, I mean, it's often in the news, the gig economy, zero-hours contracts, and the fact that young people probably um, have to expect in their lifetime to do a whole series of different jobs, retrain, have different careers. Um, in my day, that wasn't the case. We thought we'd do the same job for life. So the nature of employment contracts has changed, and I think that that causes potential issues about you know, whether those people in those kind of contracts are satisfactorily represented and, you know, they, they've got the conditions of work which they should have. And I think that's probably something which we haven't quite got right at the moment. And uh, are people feeling worse off, better off? And are they right to feel worse off or better uh, off? I think um, with a lot of pessimism there is around Brexit, I think a lot of people feel worse off. How much of that is real is, is the really cr- crucial question. And if you look at wages over the last 10 years, um, it's quite clear that most people's incomes are falling in real terms. I mean, if you look at public sector workers, for example, their average earnings have fallen by between 10 and 15% over the last 10 years or so, since the Great Recession of 2008. So, so people have got worse for yeah, people. Yeah, most people, things have got worse, that's for sure. Although there is a difference between public and private sector workers. Uh-huh. I mean, private se- public sector workers have literally been on 0 or 1% pay increases basically over the, the, the most of the last 10 years, which means cumulatively that's added up to between 10 and 15% worse off in real terms than they were about 10 years ago. And what about the national living wage? I mean, this is something that wasn't there before. It must have had a, yeah. an well, impact. Well, just, just to recall, the, the national minimum wage came in in 99, and it was changed to the national living wage quite recently. And there's now a programme set of changes that that's going to increase over the next couple of years. Relatively speaking, the national living wage is much better in money terms than the national minimum wage was in 1999. So those people who are stuck on the minimum wage are, relatively speaking, getting slightly better off. The people who are the worst off are the people who are just above that and remain just above the minimum wage or the national living wage, because relatively speaking, 
their their income isn't sort of keeping pace and they're not just above all the time, as it were. So that that's important, really. The squeeze middle. That, yeah, the uh, squeeze middle. About. Yes, yeah. yes. But but when the minimum wage was first introduced, yeah. before there was anything at all for yeah. people with very low pay, that must have been a, a, a gigantic step change in yes. terms of labour economics yes. in this country. Yes, it it was a, a massive change, and I mean the good news on the minimum wage is that it's been extraordinarily successful. Mm. I mean the big worry that lots of people have is that the minimum wage will actually. Um, reduce employment. It would have employment consequences. But most of the evidence seems to be that that hasn't really had substantial uh, employment effects. Although now with the big hikes we've seen in the living wage, it's possible that we could begin to see employment effects. I mean, evidence that we've just produced at NISA suggests there aren't really any up to 2016-17 but talking to colleagues who are working on slightly more recent data, it appears that there could be some adverse employment consequences of jacking up the living wage so quickly over the last year or two. And then, of course, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we, we, we weren't even talking about automation in the same way. Now it's, it's, it's a big deal, isn't it? People are talking about loss of yes, jobs I think from that. I, and I think that uh, the consequences of... The, the changing working practices are huge. I mean, I've just mentioned gig economy and zero-hours contracts, but I think it's also the case that, I mean, actually, there's a, there's a famous essay by John Maynard Keynes, uh, uh, which actually predicts that uh, we'd all be only working 15 hours a week by this stage. Um, an actual fact, of course, working hours are falling slightly, but not dramatically. And in fact, in some categories of occupations, uh, people, I mean, the, the, the young professionals and, and people working in the city in high-stress occupations, uh, evidence is that working hours aren't going down. In some, for some people, they're actually going up. So uh, it's, it's not so much about working hours which are falling on average, but it's about the distribution of that work and the nature of the contracts people are on in doing that work that's the problem. So it's, it's, it's young people who are on insecure, flexible, inverted commas, contracts, which don't give them security of, of, of jobs that are, are at, at most at risk and are potentially most affected by things. And, and going back for a second again to this idea of the nature of work having changed with a gig economy, different types of contracts, etc. Um, how does that correlates with changes in trade union membership? Oh. And I was wondering which was driving the other, whether stronger trade unions you know, allowed work to be uh, more structured and, and, and better or the other way around? Yeah. Well, I mean, the truth about trade unions is that uh, since the early 80s, we've lost about 4 million trade union members, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, we used to have roughly, I mean, over 40% of people were in a union, mm. and now that's down to under 25%. Mm. So we've lost a huge number of union members and I think um, the nature as we've been saying the nature of work is changing and many more people in those temporary and uh, and other kinds of contracts are not in unions now obviously we know that the the big the watershed with unions was 79 when Margaret Thatcher came in power there's lots of adverse legislation and that's I mean it's difficult to say caused this but there's no doubt that there was a contributory factor if you graph union membership over the last 30, 40 years, that was a real watershed. 79, early 80s, from then, membership declined. 
Um, and that's got to have had a consequence in terms of the way unions will protect members' interests. And it's, it's not clear and unequivocal that you can say the decline in union membership has caused some of the insecurity of contracts, but it's got to be a, it's got to be a factor. It's got to be a factor. Just in the last few days, we've seen municipal workers in Glasgow, uh, women uh, campaigning, saying they weren't getting equal pay. Now, this is quite subtle because it's, uh, they want equal pay for jobs that are different. So it comes down to you know, comparable worth. Are, they, are, are the jobs that typically women are doing the same as the jobs that men are doing? And I think we're typically comparing care workers with refuse collectors. I think that's the case that was put in the media. Now, that's quite a difficult thing to, to compare. And I'm not saying that one should earn more than the other, mm -hmm. but it makes it quite a tricky thing to, to actually sort out. Now, you know, in the old days, you know, we would have strikes, lockouts, we would have all sorts of agitation. You remember back to the picket lines where, you know, people weren't allowed in and so on. Uh, that's all but disappeared. I mean, interestingly, in the last few weeks for this article, actually, I've looked at uh, strike statistics. Now, if you looked at days, working days lost in strikes in the 70s and 80s, it was massive, millions of days lost. You can't even find a series on it now. We don't even collect data on how many days are lost through strikes because basically it doesn't really exist anymore. So the, the, the whole landscape of industrial relations has changed. And uh, another form of, of, of inequality that we seem to be more aware of and I wonder if we are more aware of it or if it's actually increased, is this idea of intergenerational inequality. In the past 10 years or so, we've heard a lot about it. Can you, in a nutshell, explain what it is and then what your thoughts are about it? Yeah, sure. Um, essentially, if you think about young people today, young people who've recently graduated, they're facing up to, I mean, I think on average, up to 50, £57,000 worth of debt when they graduate. Now, because of tuition fees, because of of tuition fees didn't you know, before, yeah. didn't exist. Um, if you think about their problems of getting on the housing ladder, if you think about the nature of their pensions, okay, the pensions now are going to be worth 10 to 40% less uh, for young people than they are from comparable old people. So someone in the same job as me, retiring in 30 years' time or so, their pension will probably be around 30% less valuable than mine is in real terms. That's a massive thing. If you add all these things together, so the housing, the student loans, the debts, not getting on the housing ladder and getting the extra wealth, not getting the pensions, this all adds up to a potent cocktail mm. of, gen of, of generational inequality. Uh, specifically, in crude terms, I mean, it's actually very interesting. David Willits, the, the, who was a minister in the last government, the coalition government, wrote a book called The Pinch. And it was literally how, as he termed it, the young are being ripped off by the old, okay? And that's very, very true. That's, that's our, probably one of our biggest problems, intergenerational inequality. It definitely exists and it's getting worse and there's no sign actually that things are going to change. Um, I'm beginning to get worried here. Are there any people who are actually better off in, in your analysis okay. of where, where the economy has okay. struggled? There are, there are a couple of people who are better off. I've, I've indicated already that those on the living wage, the national living wage, are getting better off. So we've for those in a job, just in a job, they're getting better wages than they would have done mm -hmm. in the in the last five or ten years ago. So they're, they're getting slightly better off. The people above them are not getting better off. Um, young people are not getting better off. The other people who are getting better off are 
pensioners who are on the state pension mm. because the state pension has been index-linked over the last few years. So they've kept pace with inflation. In a, in a world where in the last few years we've been talking about 3 3.5% inflation, uh, most people's wage rises, certainly in the public sector, has been 1% if you're lucky. Uh, their pension, the state pension, has been rising by that amount. So they're, get, they're, they're holding their own. So relatively speaking, people on the state pension are doing, are, are doing better. They're okay. But there's a caveat to that in that essentially, I mean, if you think about it, the, one of the biggest looming problems is the provision of social care in old age. Mm. And essentially the state is withdrawing from that. It's, it's putting less and less money into that. And old people aren't saving enough to provide it for themselves. So in some sense, there's, that's another real problem that we face over the next 10 years, 10 or 20 years. The demographics are all that we've got this, mm. the, the 60s boom of people are coming through. They're all going to be getting old. Uh, they haven't saved enough. Mm. And if they're only reliant on the state pension, which is going up, as I've just explained, but they're going to need savings to pay for their care home bills. Mm. This, these, these are big problems. And of course, in terms of the um, uh, demographics of the population and in terms of uh, enough money going in to pay for all these things, I think we should uh, at least mention immigration because yeah. clearly that's been a trend yeah. in the past uh, few years that yeah. has been very different from the past. Yeah. Yes. What were your conclusions in your... In your okay, so if you, look at the, if you look at the data, I mean, if you look in the in 70s and 80s, uh, essentially net migration, which just to remind uh, to listeners... Net migration is literally those people who arrive in Britain subtract off the people who've left. So net migration is the sum total by which we're getting bigger in terms of population. Net migration was basically bubbling around zero, oscillating over the 70s and 80s. It wasn't changing very much. But in its peak uh, in 2016, just before the referendum, it was up to over 300,000 new people arriving uh, in Britain each year. So think about it over three years, we're talking roughly the size of a city as big as Birmingham, mm -hmm. of new people, new people. That's, mm -hmm. you know, new jobs to be found, new, new GP registrations, new places in primary schools, all sorts of things. So that, in a way, I mean, it's, I don't want to attribute causality, but that's got to have been a factor in the result of the referendum, got to have been a factor. Um, and of course, Brexit now is going gonna, is gonna to change all that. Mm -hmm. But we've also got to ask ourselves, you know, that the latest report by the Migration Advisory Committee has said that the answer is we welcome qualified immigrants, mm -hmm. but we don't, we're not going to, we're going to have very strict quotas and visas on people who are unqualified. Now, is that really the answer? I mean, where are we going to get our crop pickers, our bar staff, uh, you know, all the people, all the, all our semi-skilled, all our semi social care, our social care now, people. Yeah. So it's a massive problem. I, I really earnestly believe that the simplistic conclusion that the Migration Committee came to is, is not really very good. Finally, you know, I, I started off by saying that uh, one of the reasons why we're writing articles like the one that you had in the uh, November review was to sort of celebrate, look back in a way and celebrate uh, Nisa's 80 years of, of operation. And... Um, do you think that um, somebody um, uh, in 1938, an average person in 1938, uh, looking ahead and having a vision of the life of an average person in 2018, do you think um, uh, they would consider us lucky or unlucky? Do you think they would see 
things have been changed for the better or the oh, worse. Okay, so 1938. Now you've you've really got to do a thought experiment here because you're talking just before the Second Pre-war, World War. So things um, so were so I'm thinking, in I'm any thinking case, about yeah. my my yeah. parents in their yes. youth or my grandparents. Yeah. I think there's no doubt that we we are much better off in so many ways in yeah. terms of our. Our health provision, our, the fraction of our young people able to get education, uh, lots of aspects of our infrastructure. Uh, there's no doubt that you know the country has moved forward. In fact, nearly every country in the world has moved forward remarkably since then. Uh, so what we're talking in terms of these comparisons I've just been explaining is really where we stand now in, our, in the context of what, what are our big problems over the next 5, 10, 15 years in the light of what we knew in the past. If we'd been sitting here in 1975-80, we would only probably be talking about the unemployment problem. Right. Relatively speaking... Which, of course, is not really a big problem re- for us I mean, right it's not now. really a problem, yeah. because we're yeah. talking about 4% unemployment. Yeah. Now, you know, that's not, as I've explained, it's not the numbers unemployed so much as the kind of contracts that those are in work are, are, are subject to. So it's a different kind of problem. But relatively speaking, we haven't got mass unemployment like we had, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s. So the problems are different. Yeah. Um, but there's no doubt in, in global terms, if we say compared to 80 years ago mm-hmm. when the National Institute started, we're lots better off in lots and lots of ways. So I don't want to appear too overtly pessimistic. Uh, I just want to put in context some of the problems we face. Thank you very much, Peter. And this is all we've got time for today. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to know more about the issues discussed, you can find Peter's review article and a blog about his findings on our website on www.nisa.ac.uk. For now, goodbye.